welcome to the second part of um, the anatomization of art, a perfected anatomic realism and the dissecting habits of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo Buonarroti. Now, it was no coincidence that the revival of Leonardo's anatomies came at a time when his interest in painting was also reawakened. We'd discussed before his invention of the two new canonical techniques of painting, chiaroscuro, light and shade, and sfumato, the uh, blurriness of, and sharpness of imagery. The passion to dissect was ignited, in fact, by a chance encounter uh, with an unnamed old man in the hospital of Santa Maria Nuova in Florence sometime in the winter of 1507 or 8, after the Man claimed to Leonardo that he was a hundred years old and that he felt nothing more than a general tiredness. Leonardo, seeing it as an opportunity, sat closely by his bedside to observe and then to record the quiet passing of a man without any particular disease. And he immediately dissected the corpse, writing of his excitement that he may soon enough, quote, see the cause of so sweet a death, unquote. And for those with an interest in such things, Leonardo, in his description of a leathery firmness to the old man's liver, was one of the first, if not the first, to characterise liver cirrhosis, and his dissections were also amongst the first to demonstrate the firm, plaque-like masses which were dotted around the man's arterial tree as a generalised arteriosclerosis. This period in Leonardo's life marks a frenetic pace of dissection, which for anatomical purists shows the elegance and the dedication of his work, discovering new structures, which would be described formally in the medical literature in some cases hundreds of years after his death. But the other side of this coin leaves the purist a bit perplexed with many images, no matter how spectacular, reinforcing a Galenic dogma concerning human anatomy, which Leonardo almost certainly knew not to be true. In his dissection of the old man, there are the most extraordinarily accurate drawings of the upper gastrointestinal system and of the liver and spleen fed with its complex blood supply that showed how painstakingly Leonardo must have dissected this area. He was unaware of the nomenclature of what he demonstrated, and yet he drew its layered complexity with a slavish devotion. But in the lower part of the image, the man changes not only his sex, but the species. He acquires a uterus and a vagina at the bottom end of the image. The uterus is held aloft to the sides of the abdominal wall by a series of ligaments that radiate away from its corpus like the spokes of a wheel and that are not recognised in the dissection of a human female. They're actually the uterine ligaments of a cow. So this is a confusion within these images. And there too is also... <clears throat> in this image, the compartmentalisation of the inner uterus into seven discrete cells. That's exactly as Mondino had described it, except they don't exist in the human, in women. It's a separation that doesn't exist in human dissection, but that figures predominantly in Galenic teachings explaining the divine mechanics of reproduction. In Renaissance Italy, there would have been few opportunities actually to dissect a woman and Leonardo backs up his work with the prevailing views concerning procreation. 
Men and women, he thought, as did many others, produced semen, and men were more perfect creatures. They were the only ones actually therefore capable of generating other men. And so all images of the uterus which Leonardo depicted could be demarcated into its generative and sustaining parts. Actually, without access to a woman's body to dissect, he superimposed what he imagined to be true and what he'd seen in animals, and at the same time uh, reconciling the works of the anatomy masters, whether they be true or not, into the one drawing. Of course, it's more than likely that he came back to this image time and again to annotate it and equate it with what he had read and with what he had seen into some overarching schema of the visible anatomy of both sexes. And for those arguing for the credentials of Leonardo as a scientist, it is here, in a sense, at one point, that we may need to suspend our belief. Accuracy, actually, in his images gives way to splendour, just as it does in a bisected, imagined image of a couple copulating that he drew with some daring in 1493. Actually, given Leonardo's apparent aversion to any form of sexual intercourse, his verso page of the activity is accompanied by the desultory comment, quote, I exposed to me the origin of their first and perhaps second reason for existing, and that the act of coitus and the parts employed therein are so repulsive that if it were not for the beauty of the faces and the adornments of the actors and frenetic state of mind, nature would lose the human species. Leonardo may have been sickened by this necessary evil, but he still permits in his image of a sagittal split of a male the ejaculatory ducts to actually take an erroneous course and end directly in the spinal canal. Such an origin could only have come from the writings of Avicenna, the Arabic uh, uh, physician, their internal route and destination entirely fanciful and impossible to recognise in any dissection. Leonardo might have personally performed the sections and still not recognised the nature of this ejaculatory duct. Um, in real life, of course, the sperm duct, the vas deferens, leads away from the testicle. It makes its way towards the base of the bladder by running a, a much more banal uh, course. And his knowledge of the interior of a woman in that image is also clearly cursory. Here he treats the female anatomy in the middle of copulation with some disdain. She's faceless, a mere receptacle for impregnation, and her menstrual blood actually is shown travelling a rather fictitious path from the pelvis in a crudely drawn track that's a presumptive lactatory stimulant and which leads to a rather rudimentary breast. So again, another remarkably strange image. Accurate or no, Leonardo had learned between his first and his second dissection periods the early drawings are clearly simpler in construction. They're more schematic, less intricate uh, or studied, and far less uh, annotated. But some of the later pictures should not be taken too literally. In one, further one, for example, depicting the back of a skeletal neck and produced at the end of his studies just before he died, he draws the cervical spinal column with four too many vertebral bodies. There are also in this image a series of mechanical struts struts which don't exist in real life, but which in the drawing act as a kind of makeshift scaffold bracing the base of the skull uh, back uh, to the shoulder blade, uh, to the scapula. 
Now, to me, it's inconceivable that for an experienced anatomist like Leonardo, who by his own admission was a proficient dissector, to have gotten the image so spectacularly wrong unless it was a deliberately a deliberate mindful ploy. Perhaps he was coyly imagining his version of an ubermensch, something not just emulating nature but surpassing it. And this, Sir Leonardo might have said quite frankly, is how I would have designed it. For Leonardo, the body was, quote, this machine of ours, the spine, the mast of a ship and its side rigging. And it's not implausible that he might have had the arrogance to imagine a robotic prototype, if you will, as an improvement uh, on the work of God. This was, after all, Alberti's teaching from his De Statua, the maxim scolding sculptors who were not conversant with their craft. Alberti had written, who was so influential on uh, Leonardo, quote, who would claim to be a shipbuilder if he did not know how many parts there are in a ship? Yet among our sculptors, how many will there be who, if asked, will have observed and properly understood the structure of any limb, the proportions within and of other limbs to it? Everyone should have learnt the art he professes, unquote. Um, so that would have gone to heart. Um, if, as Martin Kemp, the uh, Oxford art historian, has rather harshly suggested that Leonardo's inaccuracies, um, uh, at least in the early anatomies, were those of someone who was, quote-unquote, not a strikingly original anatomist at this stage of his career, then one could ask, really, uh, on what Kemp is saying, is what uh, we might equally ask is that if that were true, what were Leonardo's dissections for? Leonardo's analogies would course through all of his anatomical study, forever searching for a universal design that equally superintended the measurable parameters of the body <coughs> as much as the sections of an archway or the span of a bridge or the magnitude of a cathedral. Everything was interrelated. And in the last and most productive part of his second period of dissection, he, dissected, uh, he discerned the structure of the chambers of the heart which he moulded to the shape of the ventricles of an ox, constructing a glass model and filling it with water doused with, grease, uh, with grass seeds. <coughs> with this, he was clearly able to appreciate the direction of movement of the blood from atrium to ventricles and then on out into the root of the aorta. But that was actually at the limits of his science and he failed to grasp that the blood moved in a circulation or how its directional impulse was connected to the rhythmic contractions of the heart. That would only come a hundred years later when William Harvey described his observations on the movement of blood spots visible in the transparent body walls of developing live cheeks. But for Leonardo, the movement of blood was part of a bigger picture that defines something which preoccupied his entire intellectual life, which was the flow of fluids in general and water in particular. And it was a subject he thematically returned to time and again in practical ways or on paper. At one time in the service of the mercenary Cesare Borgia, his obsession had him devising a complex plan to divert the Arno River in Florence and starve the warring Pisan army. Just as ambitious were his sketches for the vision of the end of the world around 1514 or 1515, portraying apocalyptic images of the currents of water 
and the destructive power of storms. Near the end of his life, this was finally the beginning of the long-awaited treatise on painting which never materialised, images of a world either in its genesis or in the entropy of its destruction that should still typically possess some Leonardesque order and symmetry. In his second major stint in Milan between 1506 and 1513, he worked for the French under the patronage of her new governor, Charles d'Amboise, 1473 to 1511, and in the name of King Louis XII, 1462 to 1515. Apart from his concerted private anatomy work, there was actually little there to keep him occupied. The court exerted minimal pressure upon him, and about the only painting he produced was his St John the Baptist. Leonardo had escaped Milan by switching his allegiance uh, to the French, but his friend de Ferrara did not fare so well. Without fluid loyalties and royal patronage, de Ferrara, who had stayed actually to resist French rule, was captured and beheaded. The quartered fragments of his body spiked up for display at the four corners of the city. When Domboise died, Leonardo moved back for almost a year into the villa of Meltzi's father. It was a short enough distance from Milan so as not to be disturbed by the rumblings of the Sforza son, Massimiliano, who had amassed his troops in anticipation of retaking the city. It's here that Meltzi executed his own rather comparable portrait of Leonardo, the most gentle profile of a man he adored, the face younger and less troubled or nuanced than Leonardo's own self-portrait, which is now in Turin. And once more, Leonardo moved to Rome, engaged in work for Giuliano de' Medici, the brother of the recently elected Pope Leo X, Giovanni de' Medici. Leonardo travelled across the Apennines with all of his folia, his scientific instruments and his book collection, and he was welcomed to his new apartments at the Villa Belvedere with its gardens and a menagerie. Treated like royalty, but left free without the pressure of any commissions, he lived close enough to Bramante and Raphael, the real workers, to feel as if he were a treasured member of an artist's colony. Actually, the only practical task which he took uh, interest in whilst he was back in Rome was the drainage of the Pontine Marshes, which were papal lands lying south of Rome, which was somewhat overrun by malaria. In 1510, Leonardo had written with some triumph, or maybe some subterfuge, that he had, quote, finished his anatomies, unquote. But he took them up again at the Santa Spirito in 1513 when he came back to Rome. At the same time as he was actively re-exploring optics, he apprenticed two rather shadowy German mirror makers, a Giorgio and a Giovanni, both of whose last names we don't know. They're referred to in the literature as Giovanni and Giorgio degli Specchi, but that just really means uh, of, of the mirrors. Um, at any rate, almost immediately Leonardo's personality changed and he wrote with some paranoia to his patron that he felt that he was being spied upon. Precisely how the relationship between Leonardo and the Germans deteriorated is unclear, but Giovanni became aware that Leonardo was dissecting corpses in Rome, and although dissection was not illegal, he reported Leonardo for the heinous crime of necromancy, which is pretty awful, and it was an impossible charge either to sustain or to stand accused of and was considered of such seriousness that the complaint made its way directly to the Pope, whose decree demanded that Leonardo 
should he be dissecting or contemplating such desist immediately. And after that, as far as we're aware, Leonardo never dissected bodies again. Following this incident, Leonardo's luck ran out once more when his patron, Giuliano de' Medici, died. And um, he had been made the uh, Duke of Namur by King Francis I. Uh, he was supposed to actually marry the king's aunt, Filiberta, but the whole thing fell through. And in desperation, Leonardo followed the travelling papal entourage first to Florence and then to Bologna, where the Pope met with the French King Francis just after he had recaptured Milan. In the summer of 1516, Francis invited Leonardo to his court at Clou in the Loire Valley near Amboise, and packing up everything again, Leonardo crossed the Alps, perhaps at its most forgiving moment, the first time in his life that he had set foot off Italian soil. By 1517, Leonardo was hampered by a stroke to his right non-dominant side. His frailty, noted in the diary by Debiatus when the tour of Cardinal Luigi of Aragon had come through. Leonardo now required constant assistance by Melzi, with few demands placed upon him from the king except for them to meet daily and to discuss matters of art, philosophy, astronomy, mathematics, history and the like. Uh, he had been commissioned to design a new city at Romorantin and to connect the nearby rivers Soldre and Loire, but that project didn't progress after 1518, again because the marshes in the area were heavily infested with malaria. But in Leonardo's paid, rather contemplative life, he'd finally found a home that would indulge and sanctify his interests but he still dreamed of writing his great treatises on painting, architecture, mechanics, botany and geology, and of course on his beloved anatomy, even though none of it ever came to fruition. Melzi may well have been bored by Leonardo's constant harping on these matters, but he was well aware that he would soon enough be shouldered with the responsibility of collating and organising his master's notebooks and folia, and it would prove an impossible task. If we turn to Michelangelo, that Michelangelo dissected corpses is in no doubt. It's recorded by Vasari, who, although imperfect and often overly devotional in his descriptions of the master, was corroborated by Michelangelo's own pupil, Ascanio Condivi, 1525-1574. I think what comes across in the biographies of Michelangelo, or what we think we know of the man, stems from the small war of words between Condivi and Vasari. Vasari, in his quest to convey an artistic movement, can sometimes neglect the evolution of the individual artist, and despite his almost religious reverence for his skill, he pays actually rather scant attention to Michelangelo the man. Condivi, on the other hand, becomes sort of lost in personal adoration of Michelangelo and perhaps pays too much attention to his master's celebrity. Now, in these uh, podcasts, I, I guess I pay somewhat less attention um, to Michelangelo's life in anatomy than I do to Leonardo's, only really since Michelangelo, although exploiting the cadaver for the execution of a sculpted and purest elegance, never made dissection a central aspect either of his life or his writing, and he was a very extensive writer. One, of course, may speculate um, on the presumptive differences in motivation and in 
temperament of both men that brought them to the final common pathway of the cadaver. If Leonardo was brooding and reserved, Michelangelo had a strength and a defiance that echoed his noble heritage and that had called him of the hills of Settignano where he had spent his childhood amongst the marble quarries and where he had acquired the love of hewing stones to dust with his stonemason's chisel, his subia. Unlike Leonardo, Michelangelo was an intensely religious man and what is more very religiously suggestible. As he grew older, he was ultimately able to liberate himself a little from the political constraints of his patronage, picking and choosing his commissions. But the freedom gained through his talents didn't protect him from the influence of the fire and brimstone Dominican monk Girolamo Savonarola, 1452-1498. Savonarola's austere patrician domination of Florence in the late 15th century had deeply affected Michelangelo, and even after Savonarola himself had been consigned to the flames, Michelangelo was still under his spell, becoming towards the end of his life a deeply spiritual artist. There was no such transformation in later life of Leonardo, unless one is to believe Vasari's account of a kind of deathbed confession. Actually, Vasari describes Leonardo's death as a kind of melodrama, with the artist embracing the Catholic faith in confession and dying in the arms of King Francis, or perhaps virtually so. It's more than likely that Francis was not even in clue that day, attending to matters of state in Saint-Germain-en-Laye, some two days' ride away. And such a reading really belies Leonardo's theological scepticism, so a very different person. Vasari, after all, had written earlier of Leonardo that he was a man of philosophy, unquote, rather than one of Christian thought. Michelangelo was brought up on the value of the écorché and manipulated these models to provide the great foreshortening and twisted positions of the figures that he rendered on his Sistine Chapel. His Libyan Sibyl, for example, painted on the chapel ceiling is such a fine example, her shoulder and hip twisted towards the viewer, her entire frame precariously balanced on a single toe. The preliminary red chalk drawings for the ultimate fresco show how much such a gifted artist used the multiple perspective approach, wandering around his model and reproducing in his angles a sense of dynamic movement and strength. For the perfect surface anatomy, the change in tension of the skin and the contoured muscle definition beneath, there would have been throngs of young men and women who would sit in Florence for a famous artist and for very little reward. So there were other alternatives. His bronze, plaster or woolen écorchés would have constructed skilfully have been the surrogates that provided him with more than enough myological or muscle information for his needs. But on occasion these alternatives were no substitute for the real thing and Condivia reports that Michelangelo had spent time during his teen years observing public dissections in the court of Lorenzo de' Medici. Following the death of Lorenzo in April of 1492, Michelangelo hastily left Florence ahead of the marauding French army, and he settled in Bologna to begin his dissections under the approval of the Sistine Tubingham Brief, which had been issued a decade before permitting the dissection of a city's unclaimed bodies. Near to the studio in Florence where Michelangelo worked was the Augustinian infirmary Santa Spirito, and its prior, Niccolò Bicchialini, had made corpses available for the master's use, setting aside a special room for dissection. 
In return, Michelangelo had fashioned for him as a present the only wood carving he ever made, a personal crucifix cut from a poplar branch. Of Michelangelo's enthusiasm and energy for the section, Condivi was unbounded. Quote, nothing could have given him more pleasure, uh, he wrote, and it was the beginning of his study of the science of anatomy, which he followed as long as fortune allowed him. There was no animal whose anatomy he did not desire to study, much more than that of man, so that those who have spent all their lives in that science and who make a profession of it hardly know so much of it as he. Unquote. Vasari, too, was effusive about Michelangelo's dissections, proclaiming, quote, that he made anatomical studies dissecting men's bodies to see their principles of construction and the concatenation of their bones, muscles, veins, nerves, and all the postures of the human body, not only of men, but also of animals, unquote. In a message to his friend, the sculptor Tiberio Calcagni, Michelangelo had written that dissection gave him, quote, the greatest possible pleasure. And in one case, there's a story of him robbing a grave for just such a purpose. According to the Codex Maglia Becchiano, a 16th century chronicle of artists, astrology and anatomy, quote, he entered crypts to make anatomies on the many deposits of the dead and cut and gutted them, unquote. In one such episode, his decorum apparently knew no bounds, discovering during a crypt digging one of the Corsini family, whom he personally knew. It was a story he astonishingly recounted in front of the family, not surprisingly enraging them. But when they complained to the city gonfaloniere Piero Soderini, Michelangelo, on being summoned to the Signoria, ostensibly to apologise, retold the story with such an enthusiasm that both he and Soderini were seen to exit the chamber, holding their sides in laughter. On the face of it, the story seems a bit unlikely, but in the prankish behaviour that can overtake dissectors and anatomists who can at times lose their gravitas, elements of this tale are certainly plausible. Even though Michelangelo was referred to by his fellow Florentines as Il Divino, it may speak to the gulf that existed in the city between men of status and the average citizen. By contrast to this sort of enthusiastic dissection, Martin Gayford, in a recent biography of Michelangelo, writes that dissection, quote, turned his stomach so that he could neither eat nor drink with benefit, leaving the relish that he had for examination of the cadaver along with these apocryphal stories of bravado somewhat in doubt. Even Condivi includes an apologia confessing that there is a difference between the knowledge Michelangelo had of painting and sculpture and that the minutiae professional anatomists must have had in mastering their subject. When the anatomist Raldo Colombo sent along the body of a young Moor to Michelangelo, <coughs> Michelangelo meticulously dissected the man, pointing out to his pupils all of the details of the bodily anatomy that he knew. Colombo was certain that with this bribe of a corpse to dissect that he had acquired Il Primo Pittor del Mondo, for his anatomy book, the De Re Anatomica, that he'd nearly completed. But Michelangelo declined the offer of being its in-house artist. Living in the shadow of his famous teacher, Vesalius, Colombo had imagined that a great new textbook would outshine even the fabrica itself, and that in it he could take the opportunity of pointing out every one of the mistakes Vesalius, his teacher, had made, just as Vesalius had done in the fabrica of Galen. 
Colombo had even publicly remarked that he considered Vesalius, quote, a clumsy Belgian peasant, and it had started a very public war between the two men, which perhaps might have dissuaded Michelangelo even further of any involvement. Vesalius, in retort years later, hadn't forgotten uh, this sort of remark by Colombo, and he was unable to contain himself using his 1546 so-called letter on a China route to attack Colombo as, quote, a man who learned something of anatomy by assisting me in my work, although he was incompletely educated, unquote. So there was a sort of war between these two, um, the uh, teacher and the student. It started a very public war between the two men which perhaps might have dissuaded Michelangelo. I think that it would not mean to suggest that the success of a book relied entirely upon Michelangelo's participation, but rather that Colombo had miscalculated, openly boasting in letters that he had acquired a great artist for the work, and that, of course, never happened. In attempting to copy his rival so closely, and with such arrogance, Colombo's plans fell apart, and both he and his book drifted into relative obscurity. Even if the frontispiece of the De Re Anatomica was produced uh, by the artist Paolo Veronese. Clearly, Michelangelo's motivations in dissection of the human body differed from those of Leonardo. Similar to the dissecting ambitions of Paolo Wolo, and regardless of his personal reactions to his dissection, Michelangelo would have had no other objective than an appreciation of the superficial musculature and its play on the skin. How much would formal anatomizations either that he would have witnessed or performed, really influenced his exquisite pietas. Um, actually, in his chapter on Michelangelo Vasari, writes of the Pietà in Rome uh, that there was, quote, no better presentation of a corpse. It's a miracle that a once shapeless stone should assume a form that nature with difficulty produces in flesh. It's a very nice uh, uh, review from Vasari. Condivi finishes his biographical tribute in a wholly unsatisfactory way, only noting with the positive spin of a devotee that a treatise on anatomy from a man so learned as Michelangelo and rich in knowledge was simply never meant to be. All Condivi can offer up is the promise that after Michelangelo's death, every possible attempt would be made to faithfully reproduce his anatomical work. He vaguely writes of how he intends to do so, quote, with the help of a group of learned men, unquote. But it's a weak coda to the biography of Michelangelo, and the promise was unfulfilled. At the end of his memoir on Michelangelo, Condivi does neither justice to his subject nor to the years of labour spent by the master dissecting corpses, and he lamely ends that section of the biography with a wholly inadequate phrase, quote, but enough of this. Unquote. There's little to explain why the two men were so drawn to the corpse, and in particular, what beyond its superficiality had attracted Leonardo. Part of their difference in approach towards cadavers might be reflected in the very real physical and psychological differences in their makeup. Leonardo fastidiously patient in his dissections, but Michelangelo often limited by his irascible temper, which with some insight he called his Terribilita. Both men had suffered childhood trauma, Michelangelo losing his mother when he was only six years old, and Leonardo estranged from his father for so much of his youth. Uh, 
Lenabe's description of an encounter with a bird landing on his face when he was a baby may have been fabricated, but the story was dealt a kind of heavy homoerotic interpretation by Sigmund Freud. Even as a small boy, Lenabe's beauty was notable, and as he matured, he became what many regarded as extremely handsome, even in old age. Wherever he appeared in public, crowds would gather and he was treated like Renaissance royalty, tolerated for his aloofness and eccentricity because of his acknowledged genius. By contrast, Michelangelo need only to have looked in the mirror to be jolted by the physical reminder of his volatility, his nose badly broken and left deformed, when as a boy he got into a fist fight with a fellow artist. Actually, that story is quite an interesting one, really, that um, the dispute between Michelangelo and the Florentine sculptor Pietro di Antonio Torrigiani broke out according to the ceramic artist Benvenuto Cellini in his autobiography, when Michelangelo apparently mocked those artists who were copying Masaccio's frescoes in the Brancacci Chapel at Santa Maria del Carmine. Torrigiani told Cellini, quote, that I gave him such a blow upon the nose that I felt the bone and the cartilage break under the stroke as if it had been a wafer, and thus marked by me he'll remain as long as he lives, unquote. The broken nose was always regarded as a mark of Michelangelo's temper. It was part of his um, uh, self-portraits and drawings. Torrigiani, uh, a man also renowned for his short patience and rage, actually left for England after the dispute and thence to Spain, where he was commissioned to sculpt a great statue of the Virgin. And displeased with it and smashing it to pieces, he was tortured by the Inquisition, after which he committed suicide. So the stories are a little bit more complex as you draw one thread, you move through them. Um, Michelangelo, to return, was seen differently to Leonardo. He wasn't as gentle. He was seen as more plebeian and accessible than Leonardo, and he was branded with the common conceits and frailties of those around him. Leonardo was softly spoken and a talented musician who delighted audiences singing the songs he had composed himself in a beautiful voice on a homemade lyre. Michelangelo comes across as often difficult and incendiary, the prior of San Lorenzo, Giovanni Battista Figiovanni, once lamenting that, quote, the patience of Job would not suffice for one day in dealing with a man, unquote. Another example would be that when Michelangelo had criticised the Medici and openly argued uh, for a Florentine Republic, Pope Clement VII had actually ordered his arrest and possible assassination, and Figiovanni had to arrange to hide him in a small room directly under the Medici chapel, and that's been excavated uh, subsequently uh, by archaeologists and historians. Michelangelo particularly detested the stories of Leonardo's puzzle-solving, his designs for carnival whirligigs and tales of him bringing caged birds to the central piazza and setting them free in some public gesture of magnanimity. Michelangelo was determinedly more practical and far more productive than Leonardo, spending his youth copying Masaccio and Giotto. Even though Leonardo had considered himself hardly a man of letters, one can imagine him as a more introspective youth, his head perhaps buried in a book on art. 
working for Domenico and David Ghirlandaia and then for the Lorenzian School, newly founded on the Medici estate, Michelangelo had a much more communal apprenticeship. Leonardo left the company of Verrocchio's Bottega to strike out on his own. In 1492, on seeing Paolo Waller's gilded battle of the nude men, Michelangelo's response was to sculpt his bas-relief, the Battle of the Centaurs, as a thresh of interlocked figures intimately grappling with one another, the nearly faceless combatants still able to express a sorrowful emotion. One can see that in the Casa Buonarroti, uh, the Battle of the Centaurs. Drawing his inspiration from the statuesque poses of antiquity, Michelangelo had chiselled an infinitely more persuasive story of the fury of war than Paolo Waller's stiffly wooden shapes. His figures were more muscular, his art more compellingly combative than Leonardo's soft sfumato tones. The cadaver may not have been their field of combat, but it's hardly surprising that in the small bubble of the Florentine art world, Leonardo and Michelangelo shared a mutual mistrust. It provokes a particular sadness to concede what collaborative work they may have produced together had they been able to stand one another. Actually, Leonardo and Michelangelo did work side by side on one occasion when the Soderini commissioned both to produce frescoes on opposite walls of the Hall of the 500 depicting famous Florentine victories in battle. Just as an aside, Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari portrayed the 1440 skirmish with the Milanese with Michelangelo's Battle of Cascina showing the Florentine army bathing in the River Arno and suddenly surprised by the Pisan militia in a battle that took place in 1364. Michelangelo was uh, soon called away to Rome to work on the tomb of Pope Julius II and the fresco never advanced beyond the cartoon stage. After he left, actually, the cartoon that he had created was destroyed in 1512 by a rival, Baccio Bambinelli. Before then, Michelangelo had witnessed the extraordinary technical challenges incurred by Leonardo on the other side of the hall. Uh, Leonardo decided to use a method described by Pliny of application of the paint directly onto plaster and the humidity was so great that Leonardo's cartoon, which was the largest he'd ever produced, tore off the wall into pieces and with his oils drying at different rates, Leonardo then decided actually to light a fire at the lower end of the wall after applying a resin and wax pitch. But the upper part of the fresco then dried too quickly and the paint merged with the undercoat so that parts of the fresco separated from the plaster wall. Vasari had actually described Leonardo's work as the most skilful battle painting ever made, but it's been lost, some believing it to be behind Vasari's own 1554 battle of Marciano between the Florentines and the Sienese, which was commissioned by Duke Cosimo when restorations at the Palazzo Vecchio were begun in 1565. I thought I'd just say as an aside that the two had worked together, but uh, Leonardo was completely disorganised and Michelangelo was called away to work on the the tomb of Pope Julius II. One way to examine the difference between Leonardo and Michelangelo is, as I've said before, in mere dissimilar approach to the corpse. And this is partly what we're interested in here in this podcast. To Leonardo, it was bad enough that Michelangelo lacked a certain grace and subtlety. Far worse, however, was the fact that he was not a man of science with whom Leonardo could engage in robust debate. 
The lives of both men surely intersected over the Kadaba, but otherwise they shared little common ground. Nowhere else, perhaps, and in no other time, would the greatest constellation of painters and sculptors come together in homage to the human form, each stamping their personality onto its representation and each exploiting it for different purpose. But within that great confluence of talent there were lost opportunities. Beyond the layered facial covering of its soft tissues, Leonardo had been inspired to fully dissect the body even when he had no terminology to structure his dissections and without any nosology with which he might have understood how a diseased organ might appear different from a healthy one. In a sense, his personality had demanded it. It demanded this extensive dissection. He could just as easily have devoted his valuable time towards the other pillars of his art where he had already shown the world an incomparable skill. When he formally dated the first folio of his anatomical experiments, he took on this radical project as any other, trading a productivity that would have been a public expectation for a privately unapproachable aesthetic. He had a capacity in work for what today we refer to as compartmentalism, but he was also imbued with what the art critic Walter Pater had called some unsanctified and secret wisdom, unquote. It had always left him separate from his fellow artists and from the man in the street, but the decision to dissect cadavers would have seemed to him no more isolating. First painter, then scientist, engineer and alchemist, Leonardo straddles the threshold of science, but he still belongs to medieval Europe, and he remains lost in an entropy of intentions that would denigrate the record of any practical scholar. In this he has been accorded the legacy of preceding much of science, though more in the potential than in the reality. By the end for Leonardo, there was more legend than influence from a mind whose genius Goethe had written, Mude sich gedacht, had thought itself weary. The science historian George Sarton wrote of Leonardo that his, quote, originality was due not only to his inherent genius, to the penetration and comprehensiveness of his mind, but also to his ignorance, unquote. But in his haze of cosmic misunderstanding, how blissful to be so ignorant. Michelangelo, however, occupies a somewhat different space. A profoundly spiritual man, as I've said, it's not inconceivable that he feared unbridled dissection as some new doorway to atheism. Later, a related accusation would be levelled at Descartes, who, in his functional comparison between the underlying structure of the human body and the workings of a complicated watch, had perhaps in the minds of some left too little room for a watchmaker. In all of his examinations of the body, Michelangelo remained largely clueless of its function. There was also nothing particularly private about the man in the way that Leonardo had guarded his dissection notebooks. Caught up in the optical paradigms of colour and light that he had created, Leonardo's anatomical imagery seems to have been produced more for his own edification than anything else, and he was not the sort of man to share. Michelangelo, however, used anatomy as a democratising force. No less touched by a divine grace, the sculpted products that profited by his dissections of the corpse were unguarded tactile encounters specifically designed 
for the masses. Thank you.